Our scripture for this morning, the eighth chapter of John, verses 25 to 32. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once again, I don't have time to go through this chapter in the way that I would like to, just touching on every single little piece of it. The Gospel of John is so rich in every respect. But one thing that I want to encourage you to do as you read through this book, as we carry on with this series through Lent and then on to Pentecost, is notice those places where there's a repetition of a certain word or a certain phrase. For instance, here in the passage that Bill just read, um, Jesus said to the Pharisees that he was talking to in this chapter, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and that I can do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. Well, we know that already in John we've heard of that idea of the Son of Man being lifted up and we're going to hear about it again a little bit later on. So I don't have time to sort of connect all of those dots for you, but please, as you read through, just be aware of those things. It's not a coincidence when Jesus in his discourses or John in the way that he records those discourses actually repeats certain words and phrases. They tend to actually build one upon another. And where we're going to be going in the sermon today, we're going to um, dive into one of those where Jesus will say, if you abide in my word. Well, we've already heard that expression a couple of times, and he's building towards a little bit later in the gospel when he's just going to hammer that abide, 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 abide in my word, abide in me, abide in my love, abide in my Father. And so as we pick up those threads and sort of gather them together, moving along through the Gospel of John, it's helpful down the road when we come to those places. Arguably, John 3, verse 16, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, is probably the most well-known passage in the Gospel of John, and possibly in all of Scripture. It's the one that people of my generation always memorized, whether or not we went to church regularly. If you ever attended a vacation Bible school or a five-day club, you were taught that verse and you memorized it so that you could repeat it, probably from the King James Version, though. But John 8, verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, may well be the most famous single quote in Scripture. 
I did a little bit of searching, and I don't have time to kind of take you to all of these places, but everyone from Mr. Rogers, who actually wrote a song based on this, to Martin Luther King Jr., who included it in one of his speeches, to the script of the latest superhero film from Disney, has taken this idea, these words of Jesus, from their context and used them to validate whatever point they were trying to make at the particular time. Mr. Rogers was singing about how when you find the truth inside of yourself and you just speak that out, it just makes life better. And in the Disney film, The Eternals, I haven't seen the film, I've just read about it and seen a clip or two, but they're talking at the end about they're going to go off into the galaxy and they're going to tell other creatures like them who they are and what their mission is. And one of them says, do you think they'll believe us? And the other one says, yes, they'll believe that they are like us and they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. So the most famous quote, arguably anyway, in all of scripture, but when scripture is removed from its context, when you take the words of Jesus and speak them outside the context in which he spoke them, then it no longer carries divine authority. And that may well make John 8.32 the most famous misquote in all of history. See, while we find the statement itself, the truth will set you free, kind of inspirational. Who doesn't like talking about truth and freedom? The context in which we find this quote is kind of less inspirational, and most of us probably just shy away from reading the whole chapter. See, it starts off in verses 12 to 30, where Jesus is speaking to them again. Them being the Pharisees, the Pharisees that he was speaking to in John chapter 7, the Pharisees who brought the woman taken in adultery to him earlier in the chapter. We covered that back in January. And it starts off well. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, think back to John chapter 1, where we were told the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And to John 3, where we were told that light came, but men love darkness rather than light. And we're seeing it again here. We'll see it again later in John, and we'll be looking at this very thing in the Bible study tonight when we are looking at 1 John chapter 1. And so Jesus tells these religious people that he is indeed the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness. But once again, rather than turn to the light, rather than repent and seek salvation and life in Jesus Christ, they challenged him. They're standing in the presence of the Son of God, the light of the world. And the Pharisees, instead of asking for illumination, or at least clarification, said, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. In other words, you're a liar, and we don't believe you. In the next several verses, then, Jesus referred them once again to the witness of the Father. He said, I'm not the only one who is making this point. And if you remember a couple of chapters back in John, we saw God the Father makes the point through the words of Scripture and the very miracles that Jesus did made this point. 
as the people saw the Holy Spirit working, usually, most often, in response to the word that Christ spoke. And Jesus himself, of course, bearing witness to himself. So he draws them to that again. He refers them to the witness of the Father. And there's a little back and forth that goes on that we don't have time to look into this morning. But in verse 19, he said, You know neither me nor my Father. Now these are good Jewish leaders and teachers. They think they know God. They think they know God about as well as anybody in the world could ever know God. They have the law and the prophets, the very oracles of God, as Paul refers to them in Romans chapter 3. And they have had these for thousands of years. Their teachers have gone over them word by word, phrase by phrase. And they think they know God. But Jesus comes along and says, you you don't even know what you don't know. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know the Father. Um, Later on, he'll say, I and the Father are one, so that makes that connection. But we're then given a little bit of a historical notation. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Again, that's one of those phrases. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Finally, there will come a time when he says, Father, the hour has come. The time is here. The time is now, but not yet. And sometimes we have this idea that the people who line up against Jesus in the Gospels were his enemies, and they're the ones who were out to kill him, and this whole plan to put him on the cross was their idea, and the resurrection was just God saying, "Uh uh-uh. But in reality, that's not what Jesus describes. He says, no one takes my life from me. No one has that authority except me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. So on all of these occasions where something happens where it says his hour had not yet come, so they weren't able to arrest him, or they weren't able to throw him off the cliff at Nazareth. It's not because they lack the will or they lack the courage or something along those lines. They just can't. The sovereign God, through his son Jesus Christ, is saying, no, not now. It's not time yet. And when the time comes, it won't be because evil and wicked men put him to death and that wasn't part of the plan. It will be because it pleased the Lord. It pleased God the Father to take the chastisement that brought us peace and to lay it on him in the ultimate act of divine justice. Jesus took our sins on himself and paid that penalty so that by trusting in him, we could know not only him as our Savior, but we could know God as Lord and as Father. So he's speaking in the treasury, and they can't arrest him. His hour had not yet come. They, they sent men to try to do that. Later in the chapter, we find out those soldiers went, and Jesus was speaking, and they come back to the Sanhedrin without him, and they say, no one ever spoke the way this man speaks. And the response of the priests is, have you been deceived too? But they couldn't 
take him. So he continued to teach there in the treasury of the temple. But as so often happens in the Gospel of John, as Jesus goes on with the teaching, presenting the Gospel, he doesn't do it in the way that we might have expected. So in verse 21, he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. And that phrase, you will seek me, almost sounds like it would be referring to something good. But right away, Jesus follows up with, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And he sums up the problem for them in verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. It's very similar to something he said to Nicodemus when he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And flesh cannot see the kingdom of God. Here he says, if you seek for me in this world, and if you seek for me as someone who is of this world, in our day we might say, if you seek for the historical Jesus, and whenever you hear that phrase, historical Jesus, just beware. What they're talking about is the alleged true Jesus that has supposedly been hidden away in the Gospels. They're saying that the books that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's not the real Jesus. That has a kernel of truth to it, but a lot of what's in there was just made up by his followers later on. So we have to dig deep and we have to look outside the scriptures and we have to seek for Jesus in terms of who he really was historically. And inevitably what the conclusion they come to is he was just a man. He was not born of a virgin. He is not God's only begotten son. He did not die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He was just a good man. And if we come to that conclusion, we have not found him. That's why he says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. If we seek for him in a worldly way, if we try to know Jesus according to the flesh, to use an expression that Paul uses later on in the New Testament, it's a surefire recipe to die in our sins. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And note the repetition here. And this is one of those phrases that comes up over and over again in the Gospel of John. Here and in verse 28, the phrase is, I am and I am he. And remember a similar conversation in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses came to God and he said, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, there's some dispute about at what point Jesus really kind of kicked in his intent with this phrase, I am, but I don't think this is a coincidence of language. Certainly in verse 27, the people he was talking to did not understand. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. But look at where it ends in verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if there's any ambiguity in the other I am statements earlier in the chapter, it's gone here. 
In verse 59, even these people who don't understand that this is true at least understand what it is that he's trying to say. They fully understand that Jesus, by saying, before Abraham was, I am, is saying that God is my Father, and in fact, I am God. I and the Father are one. They knew who he was claiming to be, so they picked up stones to throw at him. This blasphemy in their eyes will not be tolerated. They were doing here what they would do again in chapter 10 when they picked up stones again to stone him because in their words, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. Understand, they didn't get it. Verse 27 said they didn't understand that he was talking to them about God the Father. They didn't get it, but they got it better than a lot of people who claim to be Christians today. So there are a lot of people today who want to wear that Christian banner or carry that Christian banner, but who ultimately just want to say Jesus was just a good man. It's just a good guy. But the people of Jesus' day understood that when he spoke the way he spoke and claimed in word and in deed to be God, he wasn't a good man. He was a blasphemer. He was actually a very evil man. And they were ready to kill him for it, but his hour had not yet come. But in chapter 8, verses 28 to 29, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Then verse 30. And this is important because it sets the context. Remember from verse 12, he has been talking to the Pharisees. But in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, don't get too excited just yet. Verse 30 tells us many believed in him. And in verse 31, Jesus turns his attention from the larger crowd of the Pharisees and he said to the Jews who had believed in him. Notice the change. It's important. He's not talking to the mob anymore. He's not talking to the Pharisees like he was back in verses 12 and 13. That has carried through all the way to this point. But here in verse 31, Jesus changes his audience from the Pharisees to this group of people who believed, at least to some degree. And now he's talking to them. He's talking to the Jews who had believed in him. And he said, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But even in that context, speaking to those who had believed, and that should definitely be in scare quotes, it's still a misquote. It's kind of like when people sometimes run around quoting Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Something terrible has just happened. Russia has invaded Ukraine. And somebody runs around saying, well, Romans 8, 28 says all things work together for good. So I guess it's all going to be fine. The thing is, that's not what Romans 8, 28 says. What the verse really says is, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, which is quite different. 
There is no such promise that all things work together for good for those who do not love God and are not called according to his purpose. In the same way here in John chapter 8, Jesus did not say just willy-nilly to anyone who might be listening, the truth will make you free. And then leave it up to us to decide what's truth and what's freedom. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So quickly now this morning, we have a conditional here that is followed by two consequences or two promises, as some would like to see them. First, truth has a home. Jesus said, if you abide in my word. He didn't just say the truth will make you free. If you can discover the truth about yourself or the truth about the world or the truth about whatever is going on in the world, that will set you free. He said, if you abide in my word, and we probably want to make that something mystical and difficult, but for once, let's not do that. Jesus had been speaking to these people all along, but especially in verses 12 to 29, Jesus spoke to them. Jesus answered these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. He said to them again, he said to them, and then finally in verse 30, as he was saying these things, Jesus is speaking and people are listening, and as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Really, Jesus spoke and some people seemed to believe what he was saying. But when he realized that, he turned his attention to them and he said, okay, but that's not enough. You need to take this further. Don't just hear what I am saying in this moment and believe in this moment. Abide in my word. The New International Version has it, if you hold to my teaching, which... It's okay, I guess, but it's not what Jesus actually said. He talks about keeping his teaching later on in the chapter, the idea of taking hold of a rope and grasping onto it. But that might be seen as just a matter of willpower. Rather, here he is talking about abiding. And abiding is a matter of time and presence. Every now and then when the service is over and we all go out to the fellowship hall or out to the parking lot, there are some people who remain behind in the sanctuary just talking. That's what it means to abide. We, we sometimes stay in hotels or in a camper. That's a temporary situation. But we abide in our homes. We live there. We find sanctuary there. Even when we're not physically present, that's still our home. And think of that as a picture of what it means to abide. It means to remain in place. It, remains to, or it means to dwell. But Jesus isn't telling these people that they needed to abide in a particular physical location. He's not saying, stay here at the temple as much as you possibly can. He was telling them, abide in my word. He was telling them, don't just hear it. Don't let truth hit you sort of like a glancing blow that maybe has a bit of an impact and turns you a little bit in the moment, but then before you know it, you've turned back into the way that you were going. He's telling them to hear it. He's telling them to believe it. He's telling them to take refuge in it. 
That's what's required. Truth has a home, and that home is the Word of God. But at this point in John 8, abiding is not a command. We'll come to the command in John chapter 15, but here we have this conditional statement. If you abide in my word... And it's followed by two consequences. First, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. See, truth has a home, the word of Christ. And those who live there, those who abide in that place have a name. They are true disciples. And the word here for true disciples is the very same word that Jesus will use a little bit later when he says, you will know the truth, just a slightly different form. And his statement, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, makes very clear that not everyone who says he believes does. And not everyone who says he is a disciple truly is. We'll talk more about this in a minute and down the road as we go through the book of John. But for now, remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to those Jews who had believed in him. And I qualified it a few moments ago. I said some believed, at least to some degree. Because he's saying, you're only a true disciple if you actually abide in my word. And when we get to verse 43, he will still be talking to this same group of people, those Jews who believed to some extent, in him, but in verse 43, he'll say, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So there are true disciples and there are false disciples. There are true Christians and there are false Christians. We saw in our study of the book of Revelation, there are true churches and there are false churches. To borrow a passage from the Gospel of Mark, there are those who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. That's what these people were doing. They heard the word, they immediately received it with joy. But, Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, they have no root in themselves. So when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those who hear the word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it it proves unfruitful. So there are true disciples, and there are false disciples. How are we to know the difference? Well, Jesus said, if you abide in my word. Not if you hear it once and pray a prayer or walk an aisle or something along those lines, but if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's the first promise here, but there's a second as well. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And, and that first phrase carries over and connects here, and if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you want to know the truth? There's a lot of falsehood, there's a lot of deception, there's a lot of confusion in our world today. Do you want to know the truth? 
Better still, do you want to know the one who said in John chapter 14, verse 16, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, then don't seek him as if he were of this world and could be found here in this world. Rather, seek him in his word. Abide in his word and do so until you not only abide in the word, but the word abides in you. That's coming up in John 15. In this season of Lent, many people think about fasting. They think about giving something up for Lent in order to mortify the flesh. Okay. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And everyone in the room, I'm sure with the exception of maybe one or two people, has heard me say, I always give up asparagus for Lent. It's a sacrifice that I am willing to make, and I stick to it. I have never yet broken that Lenten fast. I'd never eat asparagus during Lent. Um, fasting has a place. It's okay. Self-denial has a place, not just in Lent, but all year long. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So it's good to think about, are there things in our lives that are taking up space that might better be used for other things that are more important? We have storage areas and places in our home that are just filled with stuff. And sometimes we need to have a look and just say, you know what, we don't need that stuff because there's other things that are just far more important. And above all, we need to do that in our soul. Self-denial has a place, but it's not just for the sake of self-denial. We don't clear out the storage just to make it clear. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Replace that thing that you're denying to yourself with the cross, which doesn't sound particularly all that inviting, but that's what he said. Take up your cross and follow. Now, how do we do that? How do we know what's extraneous stuff that can be let go and what's that cross and what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, by hearing and believing and abiding in the word of Christ. And that's a matter of taking the time to actually find a home in the word and to let the word make its home in you. Again, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I knew a man a long time ago, 40 years, who, when J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, came out, he read it. He just devoured it. He couldn't put it down. And he said, this is such a good book. I'm going to read this book every month. And so he started off reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God every month. He'd just read all the way through the book from beginning to end. And then one day he thought to himself, and he shared this with me, you know, I've never read through the Bible in a month. I think I'm going to start reading through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, once a month, like what I've been reading through J.I. Packer's book. And he did it. Linda knows this man too. Um, and when we were working at the camp that he ran, you would see him at 4 o'clock in the morning, silhouetted in a window where he had his study hunched over his Bible reading, and you would see him there late at night too. 
and he did it. He read through the Bible. It sounds like a big project. You've heard me talk about this before, too. Actually, it takes about 72 hours to read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and that's if you're not a super-fast reader. If you're a super-fast reader and you're not reading out loud, you can read through the Bible in half that time. 36 hours. So really, if you apply yourself to read through the Scriptures for about an hour and a half every day, you will get through it in a month. In 72 hours, that's three days. That's like a tithe of the average 30-day month. It's not that hard. And that's how we let God's Word abide in us and how we abide in His Word. This is something to actually aspire to in this Lenten season. I'm not going to lay that whole, read through the whole Bible between now and Easter thing on you. But at the very least, read through all four Gospels. At the very, very least, read all the way through the book of John. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you'll finish before Easter and then you can go back and start over it again. Let his word abide in you. And the only way that you can do that is if you abide in his word. And Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So truth has a home, the word of Christ. And those who dwell there, those who abide are true disciples and true disciples True believers, true Christians, are those who find that it is God's word, God's truth, that actually sets them free. And free from what? The people to whom Jesus was speaking asked the same question. <laughs> what do you mean? We're not slaves. We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. What are you talking about? And in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so this isn't about know yourself and that truth will make you free to go out and be the best version of yourself or some such nonsense. Jesus is saying know God's word and know the God of the word. Let him abide in you. And that truth about who you are in relationship to him and who he is in relationship to the world that he made will make you free. The freedom that we are granted by abiding in the word of God, though, is freedom from slavery to sin. I would love to go and expound about four chapters of the book of Romans right now because Paul spent that much time talking about this very thing and we certainly don't have the time. But let me give you a very brief picture of what this looks like. And if you're from the Christian Reformed Church or some other Reformed Church, you already know this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is it that surrounds you like a tower surrounds soldiers and protects them? in life, but also in death, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that happens by faith. It 
happens that we belong to him when we turn to him and trust in him and find life in him. I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily ready henceforth to live for him. That's what it looks like. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free in these turbulent times where we're so often tempted to cave into anxiety and say, what if somebody loses it and pushes the button and drops the bomb, or, you know, who knows? What if there's another variant down the road that's worse than any that we've seen before and people start getting sick again? What then? Well, if you know the truth, that you belong to God, body and soul, in life and in death, the truth will set you free from that sinful anxiety and that sinful tendency to worry and that sinful desire for everything to be exactly the way you think it ought to be instead of the way that God clearly has ordained it to be. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, just hear the prayer that we're about to sing. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.